0: Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. All right, so a Tennis Tuesday here on Holding Court, and uh, nobody better to talk to about issues uh, surrounding the game of tennis than my good old buddy Peter Bodo, one of the great tennis authors, journalists for many, many years. Maybe, Pete, at the top of the list, of course, writing both of my books with me, Tennis for Dummies, which of course was huge, as we know, and uh, my own (laughs) book, Hardcourt Confidential. So we spent many hours together. I appreciate all you've done for me, Pete, uh, and all you continue to do for tennis with your great writing. And the reason I wanted you specifically on today was I just read your, your piece this morning on Naomi Osaka. Uh, and what happened out in the desert in California? First of all, how are you? And thanks for—I can't believe I haven't had you on holding court. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. So good to have you.
1: Yeah, same. The best for last, right? It's, <laughs> it's great to hear from you. Those accolades are, are probably not entirely uh, warranted <laughs> and justified, but I really appreciate them. And as you know, we just had—you know—we had a great time every minute of the projects we've worked on together, and more than that, I think we kind of have, in some fundamental ways, a similar view of the world, you know, uh, a little bit of skepticism thrown in there, open-mindedness, and uh, so it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, so
0: uh, the article on Osaka came out on tennis.com. You've been writing for them for a long time. You, you wrote for ESPN.com for quite a while as well. But uh, sort of summarize for the uh, listeners out there, sort of your take on what happened. Of course, Osaka, for those of you who don't know, uh, was heckled by someone in the crowd early in her match. Someone said, I believe Osaka, you suck, is what they said. Um, she reacted to that uh, in a way that we've really never seen before on a tennis court peach she just sort of you know couldn't get it out of her head and actually at a couple times in the match wanted to speak to the crowd in the middle of the match so uh let's get to you because i think your piece really summarized and talked about some of the issues surrounding what happened out there in california
1: well there's a lot to unpack there and uh and, you know, there are two levels to this. There's the macro level of Osaka and her long-term career and her history. And there's a micro level of what happened in this particular incident. And, of course, there's a tremendous, there's a great linkage between the two of them. But I want to go back for a second. When you when you mentioned that the fan shouted out, Osaka, oh, you suck. I, I actually had originally written that in quotes, too, having read what I did. Then I went back to fact-check my column, and I saw that the fan had actually of Naomi, you suck. Okay. Now, Okay. It it doesn't sound like much of a distinction, but it mm. sort of tells me that this was really a tennis person, mm-hmm. and that you know uh, because you know how tennis even the commentators it's you know it's not Muguruza it's Mugu this it's uh, it's not Madison Keys it's Maddie you know there's all these kinds that, that of that
0: different- drives me crazy by the way when uh, commentator yeah it drives me absolutely crazy when they said their nicknames on television I, di- I don't like that at all but anyway that, I, no I, di- I I digress go ahead. I try yes, not to do that. Very- if I ever do that, I mean I've been <laughs> doing this for twenty five years. So uh, if I if I, I don't think I do that, uh, if I ever have, uh, I hit myself on the side, you know, for doing it.
1: You got to go where your thoughts take you. I, I yeah. agree a hundred percent that so it's it should, it's good. It should be a conversation. It's not a checklist. So we're we're good on that. But yes, you know, I think that indicated very much that. You know, there's a person who knows her tennis and feels intimate. And one of the overlooked things, I think, that I, and I do point this out later in the column, actually, because it sounds a little Philistine almost. But, look, tennis fans, you know, people who go to see tennis, you know, they, they save up money. They, they spend a lot of money to go and see Naomi Osaka, even in Palm Springs, where it's, you know, obviously it's a very wealthy community in Indian Wells. But, you know, fans expect a certain level of, you know, it's a transactional relationship between tennis players and tennis fans. And in my view, I think, you know, I, I I almost, if I had to create a persona, if I were writing a novel with this as, as part of the scene in it, I would have this woman be a tennis fan who just came and she's dying to see Osaka. She may not love her, but she, you know, uh, but she wants to see Naomi Osaka. She calls her Naomi. She goes out there. Naomi Osaka gets broken in the first game of the thing. All the stuff she's gone through in the past, the meltdown at the U.S. Open, these other incidents, kicks in. And a woman, you know, and a woman just yells out, you know. <laughs> He gets mad and says she's she's not coming to see a version of Hamlet. She's coming to see um, a, a high quality tennis match, and there's a chance that she may not see it. So, I mean, I think that's that would be my take on that kind of a thing. Now, now um, you, you fact check, and I think
0: I I, I think I saw, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. That it happened after the first game was that yes. The- uh, that's a little early for i mean i'm uh you know for the fan to be assessing that any but any player sucks um to be doing it after the first game so I mean obviously there's a side of it that heckling is the right of the fan so to speak for what you just said paying their paying their big bucks to get a seat to get you know and, and obviously both of us are New Yorkers we've been to plenty of games in Madison Square Garden where uh, <laughs> you know, the, things are said a lot worse of course it's a dip, different atmosphere obviously at a hockey game or a basketball game um, that being said uh, it did seem that the reaction from Naomi was rather
1: startling Yes, and, and let me be clear. By the way, I, don't, I'm, I I don't like heckling, I'm not for it. And, and this woman, I'm certainly not trying to justify. Her. I'm just trying to figure out what could have been going on in her head. And I think a lot of Naomi's back history. People are very aware of what she's gone through in you know in the past year and a half or so. And and I think uh, they have opinions about that. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I I mean I think you know. And the really sad thing, in, in a sense, and this is where you, you know you kind of your heart kind of goes out to her, is that she's as she pulled the crowd in that curious post-match uh in- interview that um you know she saw images of 2001 and venus and serena and that terrible um controversy when uh her father was accused by many people of uh, you know fixing their matches and then they you know venus you know didn't play her semi you know pulled out right before was supposed to play serena semi which and so Serena the crowd went crazy on Serena at the end of that. And there were then, you know, there were later on ac- accusations of, of racism. Richard Williams said he'd been he'd been called, you know, terrible terrible racist names and stuff. So I mean, all that was, you know, that's a big part, unfortunately, of one of the most infamous incidents in tennis. But for that for Naomi to be triggered and have that happen, it's I you know, it's hard to say that the racial there appeared to be no racial context in, mm-hmm. in what the heckler said and there certainly wasn't in the crowd react the crowd actually really supported naomi the whole way so something clearly happened in her i mean i, I this triggered something that you know you know goes back probably to some degree to her social activism fr- activism frame of mind her feelings about race relations her feelings about herself and her image and how people how per- people perceive her and i think you know it just you know and and I think when she asked to address the crowd, it was really telling because she, you know, something weird was happening to her and she wanted to tell people what it was. So They don't think she was just being a weenie Mm -hmm. and crying and being all wussy. So I think it was uh, it was an really an unfortunate uh, combination of circumstances.
0: I mean, and obviously we all <clears throat> feel for whatever Naomi Osaka is going through. I mean, she's obviously having a difficult time uh, with her mental health, which is, you know, I've given her credit for pointing that out and bringing that to the forefront. Uh, Pete, as she's done in the last year and a half, starting of course with um, not wanting to talk to the press at the French Open, and I didn't like the way the French uh, Tennis Federation and the other majors handled that. Um, but there, there is a there is also the part of me that says, you know. I mean you're a professional tennis player even when she was going even before this incident when she was going through the press issues it was like okay we we hear what you're saying we respect what you're saying you you got a lot of courage to go out on a limb and put yourself out there and actually withdraw from the French Open all that being said, it is part of being a professional athlete to speak to the press. Even with the world that we now live in of social media where if you're Naomi Osaka or Serena Williams or Rafael Nadal, you know, you have your own platform, you can speak to your fans anytime you want, which never happened up until the last, you know, 15 years or so and it's obviously increased in the last 10 years. So, okay, players have that platform, they can do that, but it's still part of being Uh, a professional athlete, an entertainer, whatever, a politician that you must have communicate with the press. So this situation uh, is even, even weirder to me, Pete, because, uh, you know, to ask to speak to the crowd in the middle of the match of a competitive match in one of the biggest tournaments in the world, I don't believe I've ever seen that happen. The only thing I can think of that's comparable is you know Davis Cup matches where things were sort of getting out of control in different places, and as you know, of course, I was a captain of the U.S. team for ten years. I, it never happened to me, but I've seen instances where the captain of the home country, when the home country was uh, saying things a lot worse than "you suck" to uh, players, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, took the mic and said, "Okay, we well, you know we need to calm down here," to sort of calm the fans down. But I can't remember ever seeing a player actually want to take the mic in the middle of the match. Can you?
1: You know, uh, I've been combing my memory, and I haven't hit anything on the internet yet, but oddly enough, and by the way, it was a great run you had as, as, as captain. Oh, thank you. It years for the U.S. That was, was terrific. But, um, and, and I seem to recall at one point, Connors, who else, of course, a guy who probably loved being heckled, right? Uh, you know, I, th- I think at some point he kind of did something, but it wasn't just, I think he climbed up, sort of uh, on on the umpire's chair a little bit and then said a few words into the mic and it wasn't anything. This is different. This is a woman wanting her day in court in a sense. This woman trying, you know, to explain, I think, a very complicated situation that's going on in her head and she knows she's not going to be able to to do it. I mean, nobody's going to understand why she's crying. She's going to think, you know, it was because of what the heckler said, but it probably was really because of these images in in her head and she couldn't get out these images of of the... of Serena getting dumped on, I I think where she really kind of lost it um, and and lost to some degree, some sympathy is where she said, you know, she sort of said, you all should watch it. Well, you know, I think a lot of people saw that Mm -hmm. and almost everybody I know, it was appalled and mortified. And, you know, and um, you know, I think, you know, she was, I think took a little too much liberty in assuming that the woman, the heckler's comment was racially based. There was no sign of that particularly. And look, let's, let's be frank. I mean, you know, we're not going to pretend that there's, there's, you know, that everyone's lovey-dovey, there's no such thing as racism, but there was, you know, no clear, no evidence, either clear or even obscure that the comment was racially motivated. So, you know, I don't know. I think that was a little bit, w- a weird place to take that, I think, and not entirely fair in, in many ways, because, you know, may, sometimes a heckler is just a heckler, you know, sometimes. Well, yeah, and, uh, and,
0: and, and apparently the woman was in one of those, uh, the high the high end suites, you know, which are very expensive drinking, so apparently, oh, right. she, yeah, yeah, so I mean, that was one of the things I was able to dig up. I can't confirm this, but that she was having a few beverages and maybe a few too many. So again, okay. these are the things that happen at sporting events. So I guess we we, you know, we need to take as you started with this with our interview here today, Pete, our chat about sort of the macro view. Which is where does Osaka go from here? And by the way, I want to ask you where does Djokovic go from here again? Because I know you've been, you've written a couple of great pieces on that as well. But let's stick with Naomi for a moment, Naomi Osaka. And where does she go from here? Because it, it, it seems like, um, I mean, let's be frank here. I mean, if, if you can't handle a heckler, now she did say, that she's been heckled before, uh, whether that's true or not. I, I, I mean, I have no reason not to believe her, but I, I've certainly never heard her heckled anywhere. And, and everywhere she's gone to play, she's a huge, you know, she's got huge star power and people love to watch her play. I mean, she's a great player. She's won four majors. Uh, but, wh- you know, what does this mean for her future? Because clearly she has some issues that she's continuing to try to deal with when they as far as her mental health is concerned,
1: you know, that gets back to this issue of her that we just talked about, connecting the dots, you know, connecting the the, rob, the dots from being heckled to the fact that it's racist, to the fact that she's in Palm Springs. And this is what happened to, to, Serena, uh, to Serena after that controversial ending to that tournament. So you kind of understand uh, how that might have happened. You know, where she goes from here is a very, very good question, because I think one of the you know themes in, in the story, and I think one of the lasting issues here is, look, and I think the summer, I'm not so big on, on accusing her of entitlement entirely, but I, I think one of the things is she kind of wants to have things on her terms. Even something like addressing the crowd, you know, I mean, just to think that she would be able to get that because she's right. Naomi Osaka, mm-hmm. big tennis star, it, you know, it's, it's quite a leap, mental leap for someone. And I think, you know, uh, and I think, you know, I started my piece with with using a headline from the New York Times before she came back from. Uh, to the Olympics, and it said she's coming back on her own terms. Well, you know, I, I, her own terms haven't worked out that well for her. You know, I mean, her own terms was not doing press, and then finding out that the players didn't really support her. Uh, the tournaments didn't roll over. Uh, however, that was however one feels about how they handle that. You know, at the right. end of the day, the fact is she ended up, I think, saving face, and that's really why she came out with her. I, I believe uh, your, you know, that very moving, touching confession of her of the problems she's had and her mental health issues, the depression, the anxiety. So, but you didn't really do that. You know, when she actually, you know, asked to be excused from the press conferences and stuff, there's no mention of that. She just talked about what idiots the reporters were and how boring it was and what a pain it was. And there's some truth in that, of course, as we know. But, <laughs> right. uh, I would never you know, accuse you,
0: Pete Bodo, of being boring, <laughs> by the
1: way. I had my moments, but, you know, it's a collegial relationship for most players. It's just a little bit of a pain for it, for them actually after they shower up and get a massage to come over and meet with the press. But they, they're generally great. So, I mean, I think her attempts to impose to sort of, I think what she's trying to do is create a boutique tennis experience for herself. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, people are not going to, you know, sort of say, well, you know, okay, Naomi needs this, she wants this. She can't, she doesn't really like this because she's very sensitive and right. you, you can't do that. I mean, that's going to coming back on anything she wanted to do on her own terms. A lot of it just has, a, you know, even coming back to tennis aspect of coming back on mm-hmm. her terms, meaning taking three months off and coming back. That's not working out either.
0: Right, and got the the yeah, twenty-one open. Right, and by the way, it's fine to be sensitive. I mean, every, you know, all of us are sensitive in our own ways, and uh, and good for you and good for anybody for b- being able to talk about it and be honest about it. But at the same time, as a professional in whatever profession you're doing, you have certain responsibilities. One of them, uh, clearly, is speaking to the press, and I have to say. Uh, you know, when she took her, her first sabbatical and, and, and maybe it was, you know, she made too big a deal about not wanting to talk to the press. But for someone that doesn't want to talk to the press after a match, she's sure doing a lot of press. I mean, I mean, you know, exactly. like you said, you know, what made me, what, what triggered me is when you said at her terms, I mean, and I'm all for uh, any tennis player making as much money as they possibly can. Cause we know that most tennis players most struggle to make a real living out on the tour. I'm not talking about the Serena's and Rogers and Rafa's and Naomi's. Okay. They make a fortune. They deserve it. They should make it. But uh, you know, it, it was, I have to say that every time, I saw Naomi do another commercial or another ad. I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, that had to be set up. Her agent had to set that up. That had to be a photo shoot. She had to, you know, meet with press. She had to get her hair done. All these things that have to happen, and there's a lot of those things for have to have to happen. And we see Serena, you know, she's found like an amazing, I'm going to call it post tennis. Cause I don't, I don't know if she's going to, I mean, she says she wants to play more, but you know, God bless her for what she's been able to do with her off the court stuff. I think it's great. Roger Federer is one of the most, you know, uh, well-paid athletes on the planet because of what he's been able to do. So uh, it, it's hard when you're you're, you're kind of using that card that Naomi did, and then you're out there sort of all over the place on billboards and making the money uh, doing you know big PR. Um, stuff that she's doing. And again, she has absolutely earned that, right? And she's got the charisma and the game to be able to back to back it up. So as I said, more power to you. But uh, you know, it, I, I, I lose, I'm not going to say respect, but I, it, it, it rankles me just a little bit, I guess is what I'm getting at, without trying to be politically incorrect here. Uh, I don't want to take a shot at her because I don't think she deserves it because I feel for her. That's the most, the most important thing to me is I feel bad for her. But at the same time, you got to be able to understand what you're dealing with as being a superstar tennis player.
1: Yeah, look, it's about it's kind of about having it both ways, and I think uh, it's very hard to have it both ways. I mean, I think you I, I agree 100. percent I mean, I think a lot of people, and this is you know again why somebody like this crazy heckler could be driven to. to to, to yell something stupid like that is that, you know, they see, you know, they see that, well, you know, she's talking about how how shy she is and she's, you know, saying, you know, that she's very sensitive and she wants her space and her time. And then, and then as you say, she's doing all these things, all of which are public facing. So, you know, it's a little like, well, you know, you know, what, you know, how could you be that comfortable doing all these interviews and stuff, but you can't do the simple ones that you're asked ask for in tennis. So I think, there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think, and I think of her uh, and also I think some of the other players they, they, you know, they actually do spend, um, they do speak out about things and stuff. And maybe this is a segue to Djokovic here, but out of all the players, only Djokovic in my mind has expressed, you know, some solidarity. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. it's a little too harsh, but Djokovic's solidarity in his attempts to start this new player union and, and his buying into the, the prize money, uh, controversy at least for those of us who are plugged into the what's happening with in in, in the halls of power you know there's controversy over the lower ranking players deserving a little bit more money and maybe the the pay structure in tennis is is too top heavy and there shouldn't be that big a difference between these rounds etc i mean i haven't heard many of the women players certainly top women players or really even even that much the men players you know take an active role in how they feel about their colleagues you know and and are they actually pushing for a more, I don't, I don't even want to say fair, but a more, you know, a, a more broadly engineered distribution of prize money where lower rank players are making a making little bit more, more than yeah. they're making now. Right, and higher rankers making a little less.
0: Yeah, more similar to golf, the way they do it in golf. Which right. I, I happen to think that's the way it should go. So, all right, let's transition to Djokovic because uh, you wrote a great article after he gave his first sort of interview post-Australia, which was with the BBC. Um, he continues to take the stance that he's not going to be vaccinated. So uh, I know how you feel about that. I, I know how I feel about that. I think it's absurd. But again, he's got his right, just like any other person does. But that doesn't mean then they have the right to, you know, continue to do what they do. We, I had to get vaccinated to keep my job, as did you know millions and millions of other people. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, the main reason I did it okay, when it first became available um, here was to protect the world. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously my family, but, you know, knock on wood and, you know, I have young kids and, you know, we're relatively healthy, but uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like running to get the vaccine, Pete, because I'm like, oh my God, this is going to save my life. Okay, I'd already had it. But then, but the reason I did it was like, God, if, you know, if I do this, if I do my part, you know, maybe we can all get back to some semblance of normalcy, which it finally feels like two years later, we're kind of almost there. Uh, but it mm-hmm. seems to me like Novak Djokovic is just going to wait it out. And he may actually be able to win this battle. You you called it the hill he's willing to stand on. Um, and it, it looks like if you know some of these uh restrictions start to ease up, which they're apparently doing, you know, I went to New York City. Do I need to show my vaccine? And, nope, you don't need to show it anymore. You know, to get into a restaurant uh or wherever you're going. So w- w- is that the end game here for Novak Djokovic?
1: Well, I think it is. And I must say, you were one of the first people I knew, Patrick, who actually got COVID and and were you were sequestered in your basement. You <laughs> That's know. right. Thankfully the family yep. wasn't far just a staircase away, but still. Exactly. And it was like that was like it was a wake up call for me too. And 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 I've been vaccinated, I totally support vaccination. I, I think people who are unvaccinated are short sighted. Uh I uh I think the end game. You're absolutely right, Djokovic. may, The thing is, he won't end up unless you're just you know one of these rabid fans who loves Djokovic and anything that is different from Federer and Nadal is going to make him look great. Or is going to make love you love him even more and lionize him. I think um, you know his, his end game may, may prove correct. and I've got no problem with that. You know, if if he's if if they absolve you know lift the rules on vaccination. I mean, I'm not a medical expert. I, I will presume that they actually have this under control, and, and he probably isn't, isn't a threat, really, any more than anyone else is. But, you know, I, I think the rules have to be applied, and I think the thing that really bothered me uh, earlier on, you know, certainly from a human point of view, was the way he, you know, he pulled some funny stuff. You know, we'll never find a true story of exactly how the whole Australian right. attempt desire to get into the tournament without being vaccinated to play it out. But there weren't many good guys. There weren't many heroes in that saga. So, you know, uh, I really, I really thought that was incredibly arrogant and entitled to him. And, and it really kind of a, a real low point in his, in his career. Now, I mean, I look, he's showed, he's showing he's willing to pay the price of not paying, which is a pretty big, pretty big, big price. So, you know, if, if they let it, if they say he can come in, you know, who might've stopped. I mean, it's not going to happen, but he really took some really, really big chances.
0: And by the way, there's plenty of people as my Twitter feed can attest that are huge Djokovic fans and no matter what he does, uh, you know, he's the man. So he's, he, It's almost like he's got this rabid fan base and, you know, they just think that he's, you know, he's the guy, you know, you saw, it's a lot of bit like what's going on in politics in our country, which is, you know, he's willing mm-hmm. to stand up to the government and, you know, stand up to this, uh, you know, facade that's a vaccine and this whole pandemic, like people don't believe it's real. It's just crazy. I mean, it's it's a completely crazy. But like you said, I, you know, the the one, the one place where I give him credit is like, he's, he's, he's willing to do it. I mean, he's willing to go to the end game, which is not playing. And losing his number one ranking as he's done, not playing, uh, of course, he tried to play Australia, but I I don't think he'd, I mean, now we could question, you know, how he got that positive test at just the right moment. And it was well after the deadline, of course, so we can all roll our eyes about that and say, hmm, very interesting that he tested positive, you know, just in time, in the nick of time, that, as you said, we may never know the true answer to that. Um, but when it comes to, you know, him going to Australia, I mean, I think he believed at least at the time that he was going to be let in with this exemption. Now it, it, it's been pretty clear that, well, he's not getting into the United States, at least at the moment. It may be different by the summertime by the U S open. And it may be different as we've heard from the French government and the French health authorities that he may be able to get into the country to play the French open. So, but, so but let's put that aside for a second because let's focus on something positive, which is Mr. Rafael Nadal, who hasn't lost a match this year. And it's amazing when you see that comeback against court. He's playing today, so maybe by the time people hear this uh, on Tuesday, he will have lost, but I doubt it against Dan Evans. But it is amazing, Pete, when you see what Rafa's been able to do this first quarter of the year, and I don't think anyone, including him, would have predicted it when he was on crutches about five months ago.
1: Well, look. Do you believe in karma? Do you believe in karma? Then you look at this guy and you look at how he everything. Unlike Djokovic, in fact, the opposite of Djokovic. Everything the guy said and did during the pandemic, from the earliest days on, was spot on. Absolutely considerate. Absolutely putting the you know world health crisis at the top of his menu, and you know, uh, the guy's been great. I mean, and he's just a wonderful human being, it seems, at least in this narrow sense. And so I think, you know, there's there's such a thing as karma. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of really helped him, you know, navigate all this stuff and he's steered clear of the controversies. I think, um, you know, the the foot thing, of course, is going to be a real potential problem. It's an ongoing problem, obviously, and something—it's amazing, isn't it? He's got some kind of a foot injury that nobody knows, and he won't say. I guess exactly what it is. Tell me if you do know. And and yet, you know, they haven't been able to do any I surgery. I don't
0: know. I don't know, except it's some sort of deformity in the foot. But that—I know they can't. Is that weird? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I can't. They can't operate on it.
1: Yeah, they can't operate. They can't. They can't really. Uh, rehab doesn't seem to work. The only thing he can do is, you know, moderate. I guess how much competition he engages in, and for him to be able to do that. Uh, and be able to not practice as much as he normally would, and work as hard as he normally would, I think would, you know, for him in the past that's been a problem. We even saw, you know, what was it when he lost to Djokovic? He got crushed by Djokovic in the Australian Open final right. after one, a co- comeback from that injury, I think, two years ago. And, um, you know, you know, he said, "Look, I, I, I wasn't able to prepare properly." And I, my defensive skills, which I really, you know, rely on a lot with, with Novak, just, you know, I didn't have a chance to work on a defense. And my offense was great to get me through these other matches earlier. Now when I came up to Djokovic, I realized, you know what, now I know the price I paid for being off for so long. And, and you know, um, so I think he, he had a really realistic appraisal of that situation. To see him now, you know, I, I don't know if he's adjusted like, I mean, clearly he's adjusted because he, he, he can't be practicing the same amount, etc. Yet the results are better. He's not. He doesn't seem to be as, I guess, upset or as concerned about the impact this stuff is. It's almost a little like he's come to terms with this, and he's not dealing. He's not dealing. And well, gee, if only I practiced three more hours on Wednesday, you know, I would have, I would have won this match in straight sets. I mean, I think he's kind of resigned to saying, "Look, I'm just going to smell the roses, enjoy my life. Uh, I, you know, I no, I don't owe anybody, Don. Nobody owes me anything. And I'm just going to make the most of my last couple of years and, and enjoy it." Um, wonderful wonderful scene.
0: Yeah. And let's remember that he didn't come to the 2020 U.S. Open because of the pandemic. He could have come, but he just didn't feel comfortable coming. So I don't buy this. You know, there's an asterisk next to his Australian Open title this year because Novak couldn't play, which I hear a lot on Twitter from the Djokovic fans. But that's just uh, hogwash. Well, Pete, listen, this has been 30 minutes of enthralling stuff from you. We got to do this more often. I love to have you on. We should do this uh, consistently. We only touched on a couple of topics. We could touch on a lot more, including that we're seeing some. Some, some life in the, some of the young American players, um, which is happening out in Indian Wells as, uh, as well. So uh, let's stay in touch. Thanks again for doing this on short notice, and uh, keep up the good work. And, and before I let you go, how's the fishing going, Pete? is a oh, big the fishing uh,
1: just waiting, just <laughs> waiting for for this for, for the for the water to start warming up a little bit and getting your ice out and getting back up after the steelhead. So that'll be in April,
0: mid-April. I'm ready to go. You'll be heading upstate New York as always. All right, the great Pete Bodo here on Holding Court.
1: Thanks. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.